Turn with me to James chapter number 4 this morning. James chapter number 4. I had to get that out or I didn't know what I was going to do. So James chapter number 4. And I'd like to read just a few verses to you this morning. I'm going to do my best uh, to preach a short message to you. And uh, I've been trying the whole time I've been pastoring and I've never done it. But I'm going to try it again this morning. We'll give it another go. James chapter number 4. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 13. The Bible says, Go to now, ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I need your help this morning. I need, Father, for the Holy Spirit of God to move and to speak to hearts. I need Him to give me the words I need to speak and to refrain my lips from speaking anything I ought not. I need your presence. I need your power. Each and every person here this morning, we need just the same. That this Word of God would become more than just ink on pages, but would be the living Word in our hearts and in our lives. And Father, that you would accomplish in us that which is beyond the reach of mortal men and of the arm of flesh that you would accomplish the reality of your truth in our lives. Make it real. Apply it, Lord. I'm not depending upon myself, for myself has failed me many times. And I'm not depending upon those around me. But Lord, I confess my inability to these and to the throne room of grace that I need help in this time of need. And I pray, Father, that you'd help me this morning and do it in such a way that would bring you and you alone glory. Father, thank you for the cross of Calvary. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm interested in particular in the phrase that's used at the beginning of verse 13, where James writing under holy inspiration says this, Go to now. Isn't that interesting language that James uses? This is one of the Hebrew epistles James is. And James is writing to Jewish believers. Uh, they're not just uh, one particular body, although he probably did have a body of believers in mind, but Jewish believers everywhere. And as you read through the book of James, you'll find it to be probably the most practical book in all of the Word of God. Now, I'm not saying it's not a doctrinal book because it's a very doctrinal book. I'm not saying it's not a prophetic book because there are things in this book that are prophetic. But what I'm saying this morning is that all of the books of the Bible, of all of them, as you read the book of James, it seems as though that if it was possible, you could literally lift the words out of the page, lay them on the pathway before you, and walk. They're just the most practical uh, life uh, application verses in all of the Word of God. And James has written about many things throughout the book of James so far. He's written uh, through the book of James about how we attain wisdom. He's written about our relationship with the Word of God. He's written about the evils of the tongue and of our uh, mouth and the words that we speak. He's written about many different things. But as he comes to the close uh, of this little book of James, he gives us an exhortation that I believe each and every one of us need this morning. 
And he says to us that there's a place we are to go, or may I say a mind frame that we are to get into. And he summarizes it by this language, go to now. Have you ever met someone that just lived in the past? You ever met someone like that? I mean, listen, I'm not a motivational speaker today. I'm not going to teach you how to win friends and influence people. Uh, But I'll be honest with you. I mean, I've met people that just couldn't get out of the past. Somebody did something wrong. Somebody hurt them. Somebody said something against them. Somebody took something from them. And their entire life becomes engrossed and consumed with getting back at whoever harmed them. Could I say to you that you're doing nothing but wasting the time God's given you when you live in the past? Uh, Listen, I'm thankful. Those of us that want to live in our past, we want to live in our past to a point, but we don't want to live in our past far enough because every single one of us, if we lived far enough back in our past, uh, we'd lived as lost and undone without Christ and hopeless and hell-bound. You see, we want to go far enough back where we think we were somebody and someone else did us wrong. We don't want to go so far back to the point of Calvary where we see the lost sinner we were, where we see our sin-darkened heart, where we see what we did to people and what we were capable of. We don't want to go that far back. We just want to go far enough back to feel sorry for ourselves. I've met people that maybe lost something in their lives. And uh, can I say, and I I don't mean, I hope you understand what I mean when I say this. Uh, You know, if you're married to someone for 20, 30, 40 years, if you're married to them for four or five years and you lose them, you're always going to love them in a sense. And you're always going to miss them. And I'm not saying you shouldn't miss a spouse that you've lost. But listen to me, I've known some people that have lost a spouse and they went into the deepest, darkest pit from which they never came out until the day the Lord took them home. And they just lived in that sorrow. And I'm not saying it would be easy, and I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm merely saying I've known some people that live in that past. Typically, it's older people that live in the past. You say, why is that, preacher? Because they got more past than the rest of us, amen? They got more past than the rest of us. You ever wonder why older preachers get to a point where they start telling stories all the time? Because everything reminds them of something. Everything that happens reminds them of somebody or something or someplace along the road. And so a lot of times it's older people that tend to live in the past. The good old days that they speak of. Most of them, if they were honest, would have to admit that the good old days weren't as good as everybody likes to think. But then there's another category, and typically this is young people. And you know, people my age and people younger and maybe a little older, we like to live in the future. And we've got all of our plans laid out. I remember when I was a teenager, I knew everything I was going to do. I knew who I was going to marry, I knew where I was going to work, I knew the house I was going to own, I knew what kind of car I was going to drive, I knew how many kids I was going to have. I knew absolutely everything about my life. And then God came along one day and just jerked the rug right out from underneath me and showed me I didn't really know as much as I thought I did. You know, I mean, we, we all live that way. And at our age, we're always striving for something better in the next plateau. And I'm not saying we shouldn't strive to achieve greater things. I'm not saying it's wrong to try to better yourself in your life. But I've known some young people that let their focus on the future paralyze their present. And they were always talking about what they were going to do someday and someday and someday. You know what I've began to learn as I'm getting just a little bit older? And I'm not saying I'm old. Some of you are saying, I thought you was old. I know I look old. But what I'm saying is this. As I'm getting a little bit older, I'm beginning to realize that the future is the present. And one day you turn around and all this time you think you had is gone like that. I'm beginning to see weeks go by as seconds. I'm beginning to see months go by as minutes. And I'm beginning to see years go by as hours. It seems as though all this time and all this planning that you think you're going to do and you think you're going to accomplish and you think you're going to be able to attain it, 
can be gone in just a moment. And so where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us with the exhortation that James gives. And by the way, you know, I know a lot of young people saying, one day I'm going to be faithful. One day I'm going to be faithful. One day I'm really going to get into church. One day we're going to get the kids in. One day we're going to go visiting, knocking on doors. One day we're going to go do this. One day we're going to do that. And pretty soon they're going to be old people looking backwards and saying, you know, I always figured that one day I would have done this. And one day I would have done that. And one day I would have done this. Let me give you a solemn warning today, young people. It can happen in a moment. And these older... You you notice why it ain't younger people saying amen to that. It's older people. That's experience talking to us. We ought to listen. That's experience saying, yeah, I I blinked. I I turned my head for one moment. And I was farther down the road than I thought I would have been. So where does James take us? James says we are to go to now. We're to live in the present. We're to operate in the moment. I want to give you three things that I see in this passage that spoke to my heart, and I hope they'll help you this morning. I want you to notice the implication of this truth. You know, there's two sides to everything that the Bible says. There's what it does say and what it doesn't say. And a lot of times what it doesn't say is equally as important as what it does say. And there's what we call an implied truth or an implied idea in this passage. Uh, For instance, if I was to go to someone, let's say I was to walk into this room and I didn't like the temperature and I was to uh, look over at Brother Charlie and I say, Brother Charlie, turn the air conditioning up. What am I implying? I'm implying that it's too hot in here. You tell someone to take action, you're implying that action hasn't been taken yet. And what is James implying by his exhortation here? I want you to notice that he's implying the tendency of mankind. You know that every one of us are prone to procrastination. I don't care who you are, we all like to put it off. You say, well, I don't believe that. Well, what does your yard look like? Does it need mowing right now? Amen? We'll find out. We'll just drive by and see how how much we procrastinate. We all like to procrastinate. We all have a tendency. And I think, first off, James points us to the testimony of mankind. I think the very fact that James says this, James does not present any argument to prove that man has a tendency to procrastinate. wonder why that is. Because you don't have to argue for something that's blatantly obvious. We could look back through humanity. You could look through your life and see that there's times we've procrastinated. Man always tries to put off for tomorrow what he could do for today. Why do you think the Bible says today is the day of salvation? Because the devil doesn't send people to hell 30 years at a time. He sends them one day at a time. The devil doesn't have to make you believe you're going to wait 30 years to get saved. If he can just keep you believing you're going to wait till tomorrow, till the next service, till the next week, till the next revival to get saved, he can send you to hell that way because it is the testimony of mankind that we always try to put off what we could do in the moment. Every one of us. I think we see the testimony of man, but I think we see the tendency of man. There's a reason this is such a universal truth because this is intrinsic to human nature. Every single one of us has this tendency within us. I used to, you know, I tell all of our young people all the time, uh, you know, we're hard on teenagers sometimes. Can I say that? It always seems like when I'm bragging on teenagers, they ain't in here. Don't it seem like that? Every time they're in here, it seems like I'm always just busting them over the head over something. You can go and tell them that I took up for them. We're awful hard on teenagers. And we talk about how teenagers are lazy, how they're rebellious, how that they procrastinate. I would just encourage you sometime to look through the eyes of the Lord at the adults around us in our lives. 
I know plenty of adults that are saying one day they're going to really get in, get faithful to church. I know plenty of adults saying one day they're going to start witnessing to people. I know plenty of adults. And you know what I found? You know what seems to be the, the earmark? Listen to me now. The earmark seems to be retirement. Are you listening? Oh, I know. You're going to say, give me chapter and verse. I'm not giving you chapter and verse on this. Look around. Look at your own life. Look at what people have said. As young people grow up, you know what they always say? When they're in elementary, they say, when I get in middle school, I'm really going to do something. When they're in middle school, they say, I'm going to do something when I get into high school. They get out of high school and they're thinking, oh, I'll be in college. I'll be a grown-up then. You know, we really ought to start telling young people they ain't at least grown up until they're 25. <laughs> but, but, you know, they say, well, when, you know, when I get into college, then I'm going to really do something. They get into college, find out it ain't as easy there. They say, well, once I can get out of college and get married, then I'll really start living for the Lord. They get out of college and get married. And you know what they find out? Life doesn't slow down. It doesn't get easier. It doesn't get simpler. And they say to themselves, well, you know, maybe one of these days when I have kids, that'll give me incentive and motivation to try to straighten up and live right and do right. And then they have kids and they find out that the merry-go-round just goes faster. And then they say, well, you know, one of these days kids will be grown, they'll be out of the house, and then I can finally retire and I can do something for God. And you know what a lot of times happens? They retire, they get their life, and they realize that they've gotten too old to do what they would have once done. That's how the devil does it. Let me tell you another tendency of mankind. We tend towards decay. And those legs, listen young people, those legs that can take you anywhere you want to go right now, there's going to come a day when they'll ache. That back friend that can pick up a refrigerator with one arm and spin around like a basketball, one day she's going to tweak and fold on you. <laughs> and some of our old people... Older. It's impolite to say old. Some of our, if you don't know you're old, I ain't going to tell you, amen. But some of our older people that are saying, well, I just ain't got the health to do what I once did. No, but you got the health to do more than you'll have a year or two from now. I mean, that's the reality of it. Our bodies decay. And so James says there's no time like the present to do what we can do for God. And then we see the tragedy of this implication. The tragedy is that we waste this short little time that God's given us to be doing something for Him. Oh, I wish we could see in relative comparison what this life would look like stacked against the eternity of an Almighty God. And we would see how precious our time is. If we could only realize, I always heard the illustration given, if you just take a sharpie and draw it all the way, a single line all around this room, and then put a dot in the middle, if that gives you some kind of grasp, and I'm going to be honest with you, that doesn't even give you a grasp. The idea that the line is eternity and that that dot is our life, that, that doesn't even give you the grasp of it. This is the only time, and most of the time, we waste it. Most of the time, we waste it on excuses. We waste it on recreation. We waste it on selfishness. We waste it on cowardice. The only time that we're going to have to live for Jesus Christ, and we waste it away. That's the great tragedy of many people's lives. Not that they didn't stack up a big bank account. 
Not that their house wasn't bigger than their neighbors. Not that they didn't keep a new car every four or five years. The great tragedy of the human life is that more often than not, even believers are wasting their time that they could be using for Jesus Christ. I hear it often said about family. Let me tell you something. I believe family is important. I thought it was so important, I went out and got one of my own. Amen? I I believe in family. I'm not trying to discourage you from loving or spending time with or taking care of your family. But may I remind you that if you win them to Jesus Christ, you'll have all of eternity with your family. But you have only a few short years to do something for Christ. I understand it takes money to live. I wish it didn't, but it does. And as long as it does, we're going to have to work for it. That's just the way this world is. Those that, those that want something wind up working to pay not only for themselves, but for those that don't care whether they have anything or not. And that's the reality of the world we live in, and I'm aware of that. And I'm not advocating that everybody go out and quit their jobs. But what I'm saying is this, understand that that money and oil... I remember I was talking to a young person one time, and uh, I can't remember what kind of money I was making at the, at the time, but uh, the, this young person lived, you know, they lived at home, with their parents, and, and I think I was making something like 300 bucks or something at that time, and they said, boy, you make an awful lot of money. <laughs> and, and what do you do? What do you tell a young person? Do you crush their spirit? <laughs> you know, do you show them how all that just goes away like that when you actually have bills and a life and things like that? But let me tell you something, that money, you know better than anyone, if you live, if you provide for a family, that it goes like you're pouring water out of a glass. What are we doing with our life? That's what I want you to ask yourself. I want you to ask yourself, if my life, if God pushed stop, pushed in, pushed finished on my life right now and took a tally of what I've done for Him, what would it look like? Would I be pleased with it? Would I feel as though I had done everything I could or would I feel as though I had wasted a lot of... That's the grand tragedy of many people's lives. We see the implication of this verse. But I want you to notice not only the implication, but notice the importance of this verse. What does he say? He says, Go to now, ye that say... And we're all saying it, every one of us. We're all saying, uh, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year, and buy and sell and get gain." And he says in verse 14, Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Why is it so important that we live in the present? Why is it so important that we don't waste this time that we have? James gives us three truths about the human life that show us the value of our time. And I want you to note first off that he shows us that life is fragile. He says, whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. Can I just, let me, let me just serve notice on every one of us, myself included. You have no promise that you will wake up tomorrow morning. You have no promise of that. I've said often, and I'll share it again, the very first, let me just share with you how fickle that life is. The very first funeral that I ever preached was of a 75-day-old infant, no bigger than a loaf of bread. 
The very next funeral that I preached was of my granddaddy in his 70s. Death is no respecter of persons. We could get out the obituary and we could read. And you would see almost every day, if not absolutely every day, people in their teens and in their 20s and in their 30s that have left this world unprepared to meet eternity because they thought that they would have many, many more years. Life's a fragile thing, friend. It's fragile. You say, well, I don't know how fragile it is. I'm young. I'm strong. I'm capable. I'm healthy. You understand every time you get on that road, the only thing separating you from the lunatics on the other side is a double yellow line and common sense. And that's running pretty short today. And you may say, well, preacher, I'm a safe driver. I always watch. We could sit and talk about how many young people have dropped dead from strange and unusual illnesses they weren't even aware they had. We could talk about people that thought they were healthy, that thought they had all the time in the world, and a brain aneurysm took them out. I mean, listen, friend, what I'm trying to say is this. Your life is very, very fragile, just as mine is. We're just about four or five missed heartbeats away from eternity. We're just a few moments at any time. I I like the way Jonathan Edwards used to put it to lost sinners. Many of you have heard the story about the the famous sermon he preached, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. At that time, preachers didn't get up and snort and spit and and, uh, just kind of preach whatever. They, uh, They wrote out their entire sermon. And Jonathan Edwards had pages after pages of his sermon written out, and he would stand at the pulpit, and in a monotone voice, he would just read it. He was a little man. He didn't have a big voice. And they said that several times at the reading of this sermon, he would have to calm the the congregation down because he couldn't be heard over them weeping and crying and repenting. And in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he likens the lost sinner to a spider dangling over hell with one strand holding him there and the flames licking at that strand just moments away from it. Oh, it ought, listen, it ought to drive us to prayer and to witnessing for our lost loved ones. If you're here today without Christ, it ought to drive you to your knees before a thrice holy God to know that you could be moments from an eternity in hell. Listen, it's not time to play games. Your eternity is too valuable. It's not time to play games. There's a lot of things we gamble with in this life, but I don't believe I gamble with eternity. We see that life is fragile. But what does He liken our life to? He says, It is even as a vapor which appeareth for a little while and then vanisheth away. Let me say to you that at our very best, our life is not only fragile, but it is also fleeting. He says it's just like a vapor. It appeareth for a little while. I've already stressed on it, and I'm not going to spend an hour stressing on it. But let me just say this. You don't have as much time as you think you do. You say, well, preacher, you sound like you're trying to scare me. I'm not te- Listen, I'm not scaring you by telling you something that is easily observable if you'll look around. 
I'm not telling you something to, uh, to scare you into getting saved. I couldn't, and even if I could, it wouldn't mean anything. What I'm trying to do is get you to understand that all this time we think we have... Now, listen, I don't care if you're a toddler uh, sitting on his mama's lap. I don't care if you're aged and just waiting uh, for death to come. We don't have as much time as we think. We don't have as much time as we think. It doesn't matter who you are. We all think we have more time than we really do. But none of us are ever really expecting death. You know that? I remember hearing a preacher saying one time, said, one of these days I'm going to die. He said, and it'll probably surprise me. <laughs> he said, it'll take my breath away. I'll be so surprised. We're all facing that. And life is a fleeting thing. But I want you to notice a third quality that James points out. He says, it vanisheth away. Life is a final thing. Do you understand that when you leave this world, and for some of us, I mean, just if we knew the future, and thank the Lord that we don't, but if we knew the future, there may be some of us that have many years ahead of us. And there may be some in this room we'd be surprised to know how little time they have. But whenever that time comes for you, it's final. It's final. What you do in this life is all you get to do. And you don't get a second try. It's final. You understand your decisions, how you're leading your family. Unless you change it now, it's a final thing. You understand your soul. You leave this world unprepared to meet God. You leave this world without Christ as your Savior. You don't get a second try. This is your only chance. It's your only opportunity. And some of you are saying, oh, but preacher, I'm going to live to a ripe old age. I'm going to get saved at the last moment. I was sharing this the other day uh, in a service. But we've all heard the story of the two thieves upon the cross. And a preacher was preaching one time in a great theater on this uh, topic of 11th hour conversions. And he was saying, don't wait until the last minute. Don't wait. Much like I'm doing this morning. Don't wait until the last moment. And there from the balcony section, a man hollered out and said, well, what about the thief on the cross? What he meant was the thief that got saved. And that preacher paused and looked towards him and said, Which thief? Which thief? Oh yes, one did get saved. One did get saved. But the other one, we have no reason to believe that he ever got saved. Your loved ones, if they leave this world without Christ, they get no second chance. Your children, your grandchildren... Your mamas, your daddies, your friends, your co-workers, they leave this world. If they're unprepared, they get no second chance. And I'm here to tell you that if you leave this world without Christ, you get no second chance. Life is a final thing. We finally see the impression that this verse makes. So what does James tell us to do? He says to go to now. It implies we're not living it now. We must go to now. And so we've journeyed with him through these two verses. And what does he say in verse number 15? Verse number 15 says, For that ye ought to say, If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. Now, some of you are thinking, Well, preacher, that's a very minor distinction. And I'll tell you why we think that. When we look at this command, for that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. Do you know why we look at that as such a minor thing? Because that's pretty much just words to most of us. 
You know how many of us say, and I, and I say it all the time, and I may have said it this morning even. We say, Lord willing. Lord willing. And we just use it. It's just vain repetitions. Lord willing. But what James is saying is not just use some cute wording to give people a wink that you're a Christian. What he's saying is that you ought to live your life according to the will of God. Can I say to you that the will of God is always right and it's always best? I I know that's simple. Let me say it again. Maybe if I say it again, it'll really soak in. The will of God, meaning His desires for your life, what He desires for you to do, the way He desires for you to live, it's always right. Always. And it's always best. God never gives us His second best. It's always what's best. And I'd like to ask you this this morning. Do you really believe you're in the dead center of the will of God? I don't just mean, are you living in the right place? Are you married to the right person? I mean in every aspect of your life. Would God be pleased with your service? With your faithfulness? Would God be pleased with your testimony? With your lifestyle? If God was to open heaven and give you a record and a reckoning of the way that you're living, would it be found within the will of God? Or would it not? What James is saying here, the simple command is this. Find the will of God and do it. Live as God would have you to live. The first thing, you say, well, how do I start that, preacher? The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you've never been saved, the first step is to get saved. You, listen, you can't have a relationship with a God that you don't know. And you can't have a relationship with God except through His Son, Jesus Christ. You say, well, I'm pretty good. God never. Listen, do you know God never questions the sinner's morality? It's never a question of whether you're a good person. It's never a question of whether you're a moral person. You know why sinners die and go to hell? Because the Bible says they are dead in trespasses and sins. The accusation God levels against you is not that you're a puppy killer. It's not that you don't rewind videos before you return them. Uh, God's great accusation that He's leveling against you is not that you're a bad tipper. God's problem with you is that you're dead in your trespasses and sins. The question is, have you been made alive in Jesus Christ? If you've never been saved, that's where you start. You say, well, you know, where do I go from that? Well, uh, Paul wrote and said, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. We ought to live separated. We ought to live holy. Uh, The Bible goes on and on dictating to us what the will of God is for our life. Our problem is we think that the primary essence of the will of God is the decisions that we have to make day in and day out. That's not the primary essence of the will of God. The primary essence of the will of God is not where you work, what you drive, who you marry, where you live. That is the secondary of the will of God. The primary is that we live wholly dedicated to Jesus Christ. You do that and everything else will work itself out. God doesn't stumble. God doesn't stutter. God's not playing hard to get. If you'll live for Him and get in communion with Him, He'll let you know what you need to do when the time comes to make a decision. We see the command, but then we see the clarification. He says that ye rejoice in your boastings. He says all such boasting, or all such rejoicing, 
is evil. He wants us to understand, listen to me, procrastination is not caused by laziness in the spiritual realm. I want you to get this. Procrastination is not caused by laziness in the spiritual realm. Do you know how I know that? Because you and I, it's not about what we do, it's about what Christ does through us. The Christian life is not something accomplished through self-will or self-resolve, but through surrender to the Holy Spirit of God. And so how could we be being lazy about something that we wouldn't be doing anyway, we'd just be surrendering to? Let me tell you what procrastination is. Procrastination is caused by pride. He uses the term boastings. Man wants to feel as though he has control of his life. Man has always wanted to feel that way. You say, what's wrong with that, preacher? Well, nothing's wrong with it except that it just isn't so. Nobody has control over their own life. You say, well, I do. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I go. I do as I please. I do what I want. Yeah, but who's giving you the wants that drive you to do what you're doing? You say, well, I do as I desire. Well, where are your desires coming from that are driving and defining who and what you are? We don't all do as we want. I'm going to be honest with you. I love to eat. I know that comes as a shock. But I love to eat. But, but I, I'm going to be honest with you now. If I could get rid of my appetite and not have to take the time nor spend the money to ever eat again, I would do it. The problem with that, though, I can't. Because eventually, enough time rolls around, that stomach's going to start growling. And if that stomach growls long enough... This preacher's going to start growling, amen? And I'm going to start getting hungry because I'm governed by that. We're all governed by that. I don't like to spend all the time in the world sleeping that we all spend. Eight hours, a third of every day, if we're actually getting the sleep doctors say we ought to. But you stay up long enough, them eyelids will start to get heavy. What are you saying, preacher? I'm saying we're all governed by something. The greatest liberty that the human uh, experience and the human soul has is not necessarily to be its own master, but to choose its own master. The Bible says, no man liveth unto himself, no man dieth unto himself. It's pride. We want to buck against God. We want to tell God that we have control and not Him. And that's all fine and well until one day when God does, uh, does to you like He did to me and jerks the rug out from underneath you. It makes you realize you're not as in control as you thought you were. We see finally, not only the command and not only the clarification, but we see the course that God sets for us. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. This is the great text verse on what we like to call sins of omission. When we know to do right, and when we don't do right. God counts it as sin. That's not to say we never mess up in life. The Bible says if we say that we have no sin, we lie and do not the truth. We all sin. And First John says, and if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But it doesn't change the fact that when we know that we need to be living right and we refuse to do it, it's sin. It's not just laziness. It's pride. It's defiance. It's sin. Some of you are sitting here this morning and you were hoping for a sermon on the cross. But some of you are thinking this morning, Preacher, I know I'm not everything I ought to be, but I'm not as bad as the next guy. 
not as bad as the next lady. Preacher, I know I'm not doing what I used to be doing, but I'm not doing what other people are doing. And here's the question that I pose to you. Are you doing everything you know to do to serve Jesus Christ? Are you doing everything you know to do to be faithful to Him? If you're not, the Bible says that God counts it as sin. So what do we do with sin? We confess and forsake it. We repent of it. And we ask God to help us to, by His grace, live more closely, walk more closely to Him day by day.